If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, we get to the number one most often quoted verse in all of Scripture this morning. So if you know one, you probably know this one, John 3.16. But what is often not known by many people is the actual context in which John 3.16 is spoken. And it's a very particular context. It is in that context that we want to look at it this morning. Because it really is in response to Nicodemus's question. Nicodemus is a very bright man. He, of that time, is a very learned man, extremely intelligent. And in fact, what Nicodemus knew about the world and what Nicodemus believed about God was very well thought out. And so Nicodemus, like many today, would ask the question, how can it be? How can it be? How can a man be born again? What is it that's transpiring in that relationship? And how does that come about? It may well be a question that some are asking that are here today. Maybe you're visiting. Perhaps you came with a friend. And you're wondering what it means to be born again. Jesus is going to answer that question. And it is an important one. It is the only one that's ever asked that has eternal implications. What must a man do to be born again? Jesus is now going to answer that question. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for salvation, so rich and so free, because you, Jesus, were lifted up, put on Calvary's cross in our place, and there died for my sin, paying the price, taking care of the debt. And so, Lord, we give you this time, and we pray that your word would speak to your people. Lord, bless those who already know you, and prepare the hearts to receive the gospel to those who do not yet know you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You you can almost imagine Nicodemus saying, okay, we'll prove it. Prove it. If you're Messiah, if you are who you say you are, then give me some proof. People are going to ask you that question. They ask me that question. They ask of the church, well, well, how do you know? Jesus, now in verse 8, and we'll take down through verse 21, answers the, the question about spiritual blindness. You see, It is spiritual blindness that causes people to not believe. It is not lack of evidence. It's not lack of evidence. There's plenty of evidence. If you're here in this room and your life is evidence that Jesus is real, say amen. Amen. My life is evidence of a real transformation that occurred in my life in 1968. Began a journey 
of God transforming and changing me that I am still on, I am not the same person I was. But I am not fully the person I'm going to be either. I'm being sanctified and made into the image of the true and the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That began because I was born again. Verse 8. Speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't explain everything about the work of the Spirit. Without faith, it is an impossibility to please God. Plain teaching of Scripture. You believe by faith, you're saved by faith, grace comes into your life by faith, It is faith that saves. It's not simply you gain some knowledge or understanding. Because if one could be saved by knowing something, then you can be saved by works. You're saved by faith. And so Jesus begins by saying it's a work of faith. It's a work of the Spirit. And Nicodemus in verse 9 answered and said to him, How can these things be? How can it be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Don't you know your Bible, Nicodemus? Aren't you a teacher of the word? Do you not know what it says? There's a little bit of air, probably of chastisement there, but there's definitely an air of, would you please remember what you already know and have heard? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. In other words, Nicodemus, I'm not really telling you anything new. This is not new news. You should have been looking. You should have known because the Old Testament spoke of me. What you know from the books of Moses, whom you clearly believe in, whom you support wholeheartedly and fully, He spoke of me, is what he's saying. For if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, and please underline the word believe as we go through this passage today, Jesus will repeat it over and over and over. Notice he doesn't say if you join a church. Notice he doesn't say if you have a specific rendering of the Bible. Notice it doesn't say if you go through a class. Notice it does not say if you're baptized. Notice it does not say if you understand certain cardinal doctrines of faith. It simply says if you believe. You do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Look, I've shared with you earthly things. You don't even get the stuff that's right in front of your face. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So he begins to open up this dialogue with Nicodemus. 
And he points out a problem with Nicodemus, and that problem is spiritual blindness. And there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in the first four verses, the Apostle Paul speaks to that very place that exists still in our world today. And it says there, Therefore, since we have this ministry and we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. We've renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, even if it's not perfectly clear, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded. You are dealing with people who are spiritually blinded when you're talking to someone who does not yet know the Lord. That's the primary reason that people do not know the Lord. They are spiritually blinded by the God of this age. The enemy's devices have been effectual. We do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. You, you see, there are all kinds of reasons that people give for not believing in Jesus. But they're really a matter of blindness. They're really a matter of not wanting to come to the light. It's not for lack of evidence. And so, Jesus is going to give Nicodemus a few things to ponder. In the first one, he uses this example of the wind. Uh, and, and it's highly likely because during that day and time, unlike our day and time, no one had air conditioning. It's believed this was near summer when this particular event occurred. And so they're outside. They may have been on a rooftop, maybe under a tree, and the wind is blowing. He said, do you, do you not know? The Spirit of God works in ways that we don't understand. And remember who Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher. He's a student of the Old Testament, and he surely would have known of the prophecy of Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. And you can almost imagine the wheels beginning to turn, as Jesus says, and a wind will come upon them. And they who were dead, dried up, and gone will have life breathed right back into them, and they will stand up. You see, Nicodemus believed absolutely everything that Moses spoke about. He believed the Old Testament as we know it. He would have been sitting there as a scholar of Old Testament things, thinking on these things. And he believed that the wind of God could blow and, and, and raise people up. He believed in the Ruach Elohim that brought the universe into existence from nothing. And yet he's saying, well, I, you know, this whole thing about Messiah, I, I'm not sure. That's kind of far-fetched. And yet he believed that Moses handing down the account of the book of Genesis, which we're in. Please come on Sunday nights. We're in chapter 3. We're looking at the original sin tonight. He was a teacher of the truths of the Jewish people. He believed in all of those things that were said. And yet he's saying, well, I, you know, I don't believe in miracles. 
I'm not sure I can get this whole Holy Spirit breathing life into a dead thing. And Jesus keeps giving him example after example. And so he turns him next to the serpent on the pole. You see, the context of John chapter 3 in this sense actually ties into Numbers chapter 21 and this incredible picture of the children of Israel as they've been delivered from the bondage of sin under Pharaoh. They've been spared from the angel of death. They've been brought across the Red Sea. They're wandering in the wilderness and they are bellyaching about God's miraculous provision of manna every day. In other words, they become the first whiners for God. They're like, have you brought us out into the wilderness to kill us? And God gets a little upset. And so he says, look, there's going to be an issue here. And if you want to turn there, uh, you you can kind of hold your finger and, and you can get to Numbers 21. But here's what it says. You're in John 3. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And here's the context. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's saying, look, let's bring this into our day and time. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So John 3.15 sets the stage of John 3.16 and 17. And it's in the context of Jesus, the Son of Man, being lifted up exactly as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up to save the children of God in the camp of the Egyptians. As they've encamped on the other side of the sea, the Egyptians are on the other side, and here the children of Israel have been delivered. They were delivered by faith, amen? When the Red Sea parted, that wasn't somebody went out there, well, let's get some big fans. We're going to build a bridge. No, God miraculously spared their lives and took them into the wilderness and then miraculously provided for them. It was a miracle. And of course, John 3.16 follows, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, again believes should not perish but have everlasting life. And just in case you didn't get it, Jesus goes on answering this question, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed. You realize what Jesus is saying. He's saying exactly like the serpent on the pole was lifted up and stuck in the middle of the encampment of the Egyptians, exactly the same faith to save you then is the faith you need to be saved now, and it comes through believing. That's the context of John 3, 16, 17, and 18. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the only begotten Son of God. So he begins by saying, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And here's the context. Numbers 21, verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
There's no food, there's no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. They're saying, look, God, you saved us, and now you're going to kill us. There's a lot of people that think that way. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. And here it comes. Verse 7, and therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And pray to the Lord that he make a way to get the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks on it, he shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, and he put it on the pole, and so it was that if a serpent had bitten anyone, and he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. So now you know the context of John 3.16. There wasn't a single thing that the people did to be saved. They simply looked at the serpent on the pole. And the unique thing between both accounts here in the book of Numbers and in John's gospel is the only thing that happened was it was lifted up. And so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so he's just telling them, he's giving them the whole picture. You know, here's the deal, Nicodemus, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be put on a pole. I'm going to be that same way. You're, You're going to see me. And here's the deal. All you need to do is look and live. All you have to do is look. And live. All you have to do is believe. And so he repeats time after time after time after time. Believe, 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 believe. Not get religious. Nicodemus was plenty religious. But simply believe. Nicodemus is still going, I'm not sure I get it. And so Jesus gives him another example. He said, look, I, I get it. You don't understand the whole working of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's, let's say you've been teaching this passage in Numbers your entire life, but you don't understand what it actually means. So let's go one more. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And then he goes on, verse 19, and explains it one more time. And this is the condemnation. This is the reason you're already condemned. Here is the issue. Herein lies the problem that the light has come into the world. Of course, we now know that he was speaking of himself. The light's come into the world. But men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The very thing that Paul would address. The problem is not knowledge. The problem's not information. The problem isn't that God's been disproven. The problem isn't science. The problem is men love darkness. They still love darkness. Men still love their sin. Women still love their sin. Mankind still loves its sin. Why? Because their deeds were actually evil. We have a problem. It's an internal one. It's not an external one. Inside of every last human being, unfortunately, dwells a little bit of that wickedness that Adam brought into the world when he sinned. And if you let it, it will rule you. 
And so it's a matter of not believing the light. For everyone practices evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds would be exposed. You ever had that wonderful experience of coming into your kitchen in the middle of the night, you're going to get that snack, and you turn on the light, and there goes the bugs. Oh, they were really happy as long as you didn't turn on the light. You turn on the light, and they're, they're out of here. It's exactly what happens. The light goes on, the bugs go scattering. In a tropical environment, we're talking cockroaches this big. They're happy. They have names. They wear clothes. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they've been done by God. And so he begins to deconstruct the intellectual problems that are going on in the mind of Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, you're making this way more complex than it needs to be. This is a heart issue. This is people love evil. And whenever you say stuff like that, here's what happens. Well, I'm not evil. And then people will list all the things that makes them not evil. I don't murder. I haven't committed adultery. I don't steal. That's not God's definition of evil. God's definition of evil is that you are not like him. Holy. Amen? That's the definition. When you make that the definition, everybody's evil. Amen? Now, you may be differently evil than other people that you know. You may be more or less evil than other people you know. But the fact of the matter is, Paul writes this very thing when he writes to the church at Rome. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the problem. The problem is not that you're better than other people. The problem is you're not as good as God. That's God's definition of you have a problem. People don't like it when you say that. They want to get back to their definition. Bottom line is, is we like our darkness. Whatever that darkness is. And so they make their excuses. And usually the way it goes in our day and time, well, I'm just too intelligent. You know, people who are Christians need a crutch. They need that God thing. It Give me two crutches if that's the answer. I'll take two crutches, a cane, a a leg brace, a cast. I need Jesus. Because inside of every last believer is a heart that's deceitful and desperately wicked and who can know it. You see, that's the issue. So people say, well, you know, I've got an intellectual problem. God's been disproven. You know, science has taken God out of the picture. And I want to address a few of you this morning because I get this all the time. People come to me and say, well, you know, I just, I just can't believe that there's even a God. You know, we know so much more about the world that we live in today than we did, you know, thousands of years ago. It just makes no sense to me to believe in a creator. Really? 
Is that so? Or is that what you want to believe because your heart is evil? And just like Nicodemus, you do not want to deal with the implications of the fact that there is a God. And I purport to you that that is exactly the case for most people. I don't want to be responsible. It's not that there isn't evidence to the contrary. You see, many people who claim to be highly educated, and in some cases actually are, come to faith in Christ. Because at the end they realize they've been duped. They've been deceived. People have tried to tell them their whole life that God doesn't exist. I was one of those people. I was one of those people. I had a lapse of faith that lasted nearly a decade. So what's the real question? Hmm. You really believe we got here by chance? Do you really believe we got here by chance? Probably the number one stumbling block for people who think that they can't believe because it's stupid is they think that evolution has proven that there's no need for God. So let's look at a couple of things in our remaining time. You see, most disciplines of science operate in some very tight parameters whereby things are proven, supposedly. But can I tell you, the theory of evolution has never been proven. There is no empirical evidence. It's not verifiable, it's not observable, and it's not repeatable. Matter of fact, every single thing that's taught in schools today at the college level down is nothing more than an educated guess as a way to explain away that there may possibly be a creator. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that all scientists think that that's, that's the reason that they need to think that way. But I am saying to you, it is the antithesis of saying that there's a creator God who dwells outside of space and time who created everything in the entire universe. He's, this, evolution is the other side of that. And people will say, well, you know, we've observed change over time. Can I tell you that change over time does not change a horse into a human? <laughs> Can I tell you that change over time never accomplishes interspecies change? It never has and it never will. And there's a reason for it. It's called the DNA molecule. And locked inside of the DNA molecule are the parameters whereby all life exists within its kind. And God said it that way. And yet people still believe that somewhere there's going to be evidence, though we've been looking now for almost 200 years, and we've not found a single mechanism that indicates that we know where moths even came from. 
We don't know where finches came from. We have zero idea of how those things happened. And in fact, during the Cambrian explosion, some purported 485 million years ago, every single living phylum today came into the fossil record at exactly the same time. And yet people still say, well, it was change over time. You see, the problem is, is they don't define what they actually mean. They're talking about change over time as in a beak gets a little longer. They're not talking about that beak becoming some other beast. Change over time is incontrovertible. That happens. Longer feathers, different colored fur, different skin tones and colors. There's all kinds of things that happen that way. But we have not found yet a single fossil that indicates that any species has ever turned into another species. There isn't one. The great French zoologist, Dr. Pierre-Paul Grasse, wrote this in his seminal work on the death of evolution. He said, what is the sum of their unceasing mutations if they do not change? That was his conclusion. After 37 years of studying evolutionary theory at the molecular biologic level, he said, we've observed all kinds of mutations, but they never result in a change of one species to another. In some, the mutations of bacteria and viruses are merely hereditary fluctuations around a median position. They swing to the right, they swing to the left, but have no evolutionary effect. Evolutionists know this is the case. And yet they still tell your kids that somehow goo turned into you. They have not explained the mechanism as to how life arose in the first place. And they jump from no mechanism from life existing at all to man. And they do it with no link one thing to another. A second thing, Dr. Richard Dawkins, author of a, of a book that's still widely read, The Blind Watchmaker. And in it, he, he says this. He says, natural selection is the blind watchmaker. And the premise is this, that all of nature is unguided. It just simply changes. It's blind because it does not see ahead, does not plan the consequences, has no purpose in view, and yet the living results of natural selection overwhelmingly impress us with the appearance of design. As if a master watchmaker with the intent to impress us by illusion of design and planning, made these things. We call that doublespeak. That's seeing one thing and saying something else. He's actually admitting that everything he sees implies to him that there's actually design inherent in what he sees. And yet, since he wrote that book in 1986, people still read it as if it were the Bible. He goes on in that book to talk about bats. And this is hilarious to me, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to giggle a little bit. He uses the example of a supposed transitional animal between a reptilian and a mammal. And it's the bat. He said, how did their wings get the start? This is directly quotation from the book. 
many animals leap from bough to bough and sometimes fall to the ground. Especially in a small animal, the whole body surface catches the air and assists in the leap. Or it breaks its fall, acting as a crude airfoil. Any tendency to increase the ratio of surface to the area of weight would help. For example, flaps of skin growing out from underneath the angles of the joints. And it doesn't matter how small and unwing-like these wings first are. But there must be some height, let's call it H. And such an animal would just break its neck if it fell from that height. And in this critical zone, any improvement in the body's surface and ability to catch the air and break the fall, however, no matter how slight the improvement, could make a difference between life and death. And natural selection will then favor a slight prototype of these wing flaps, and then these flaps become the norm. And the critical height of H will become slightly greater and slightly further as it increases the wing flaps. And it will make a difference between life and death, and so on until they get proper wings. Does that sound like nonsense to you? So like a bunch of bats got together that do not have wings yet, and they crawl up into trees and try and commit ritual suicide. (laughs) Furthermore, the inheritance of characteristics that are developed by action has been completely disproven. It's an inferior design. The whole premise of it is nonsense, and yet people believe it as as truth. How many died before they evolved? How did they imprint that into the DNA? They can't. How did they then store all of those things systematically in linked order so that every last animal, one right after another, inherited the characteristics of the previous one? Not just his own experience, because they only lived for about six months. There's this giant pile of almost bats down at the bottom of the tree. And yet, people believe it. So they don't have to believe in God. And it goes on and on and on. And I could spend the whole rest of today giving you example after example. Most of you are pretty sure mousetraps don't grow on trees, amen? (laughs) There's only five parts in it. If you count the staples, there's six. There's a piece of wood. There's a little bar. There's a bar that goes underneath the clasp. There's the clasp itself and a spring and some staples. That's it. And not one person in this room believes you're ever going to find a mousetrap growing on a tree someplace. Why? Because it has a design, it needs a designer. It's simple. And yet people, I'm too smart. We could get into the genomic variations that are existent within bacteria, but I'd bore you with mathematics. So we won't. But I can tell you this, inside of your body, there are trillions of trillions of chemical combinations of proteins within your DNA molecule. And those trillions of trillions are coming from hundreds of thousands of proteins. 
And we have yet to produce one significant protein in a laboratory in closed environments. And yet people believe that that all happened by chance in space. Let me give you a little science here. Every one of your cells is wrapped with a very fine membrane to hold everything together. So what came first, the membrane or all the junk floating in space? Because without the cell membrane, the cell can't exist. People say, well, well, you're just making that up. No, I'm not just making that up. And then inside of that, there are hundreds of thousands of chemical compounds in the very most simple cell in your body. And people think that that all happened by chance. Why? So that they don't have to believe in God. That's the ultimate conclusion you come to. Nicodemus was in that place. Don't be in that place. Don't believe that you have to be a fool to believe in Jesus. You can be a brilliant scientist, and there are tens of thousands of Christian scientists all over the planet doing work at the highest levels who believe that there's a creator in heaven who sent his own son into this world to die for our sins. Amen? Would you stand with me and bring the worship team back out? Now, I didn't say these things to impress you with science. I said them to you because people think that they can't believe because they're too smart. That's because there's a lot of darkness being preached in our world. And prayerfully, I just shown a little bit of light on it. And if that's you, and you came today and you're like, man, I just don't know. I don't know how to believe in God. I, you know, I think we got here because monkeys became men. Goo to you. Dinosaur to Dave. Whatever you want to call it. No, you were purposed and designed and built by God. And Jesus just said he loves you. Jesus loves you. And he came into this world to prove that. And all you need to do is believe in him. We have a team in our prayer room that would love to share the good news of the gospel with you. Refine that a little bit for you. If that's you today, I'm going to ask you, go and see if it is not true. Because if you ask and seek and knock, you'll find him. I did. And so can you. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that the truth can set us free. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here today that came and they do not yet know you, and maybe they came with an intellectual argument as to why you're not real. Lord Jesus, set them free. Show them the truth that, Lord, you are exactly who you said you are. You're both the creator and the savior. And though you made us, you made us for a purpose that we might have relationship with you. And so bless us as your people today. Give us joy and peace. 
save those who are searching right now. Pray that they would get up out of their seats and go to the prayer room and receive Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We bless your name. We thank you. We ask all of this, Jesus, in your name, the only name. Amen.